Matthew, really great to meet you, man. Thanks so much for taking some time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. Yep, it's my pleasure. And thanks a lot for the invitation. Uh, really looking forward to it. You're welcome, man. Yeah, thanks for doing what you do. I'm looking forward to the chat as well. And, you know, we always like to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Uh, you know, starting with the present day, I'm a professor of chemistry at the University of Copenhagen. That's about half my time. And the university has been so generous, so I'm allowed to use half my time with startup companies. And so I'm working with entrepreneurship and in particular, the companies Air Labs and Rensair. And so we're working with uh, sensing air pollution and also doing something about air pollution by providing clean air to people. But you know, as far as why I am the way that I am, um, you know, ask my wife. I'm not, <laughs> but but I'm 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 from a small town in Minnesota. Uh, grew up there. I was like inventing stuff in the basement and screwing around. And eventually, I don't know why, but they let me into Caltech. So I went out to Pasadena for a few years. And after that, I got a job in Sweden. And uh, then I've been living in southern Sweden for many years and then working at the University of Copenhagen uh, for 25 years now. So I've, I've been over here in Scandinavia uh, for a while. What were you inventing in the basement? <laughs> so there was a, you know, a, an obsession in sixth grade with pinball machines. And so we started oh. out just making our own, our own pinball machines, you know, rubber bands and flippers and nails and stuff. But then we, we kind of advanced into robotics and so, you know, first this could be just little motors that you would use as actuators and batteries and lights and stuff and kind of combined with the model train set. And I, I, bought, a, I bought a robot, you know, through the, we, we had, we, you know, there was no internet back then in the dark ages when I grew up. So you, you had to get a mail order thing. And I got a mail order robot and then you, you could actually move these, these little things. And I, I bought mm -hmm. Pong. You know the the little game with the tennis ball going back. The first back. video game ever made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And took that apart and, and made it better. And I had a little computer that was a, a Timex Sinclair. And I, and I know you know it predates the Commodore that everybody talks about. And you would tape in a program onto a cassette tape, right? And then plug it into the computer, and you could you could program different things. And it, it had such an awful keyboard, you know, it was like trying to program a microwave oven with just like a foil keyboard. So I bought a keyboard out of an IBM computer, also through the mail. And then I took apart that Timex Sinclair and wired it in by hand, you know, so I was learning about soldering and doing all this stuff. And, and then it worked really well. And then I could, I could type like a maniac on my... This is like high school when you're doing this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was... Junior high, actually. Uh, and I was, I was like the richest kid on the block because I talked my parents into getting the memory extension, 16 kilobytes of memory. Kilobytes, 16, wow. It, 16 kilobytes of memory that I had on that machine. Yeah. But that, you know, I don't know, that, that led on to some other things uh, through, through the years, yeah. And at university, you studied chemistry, is that right? Yeah, chemistry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Okay. 
you know, I, I had a big sister. She she went to the big city and was a, a laboratory assistant in the in the chemistry lab. And I went up to visit her and she gave me a tour and she said, you know, I'm going to show you something. And so she she took out a beaker of water and then she cut off a piece of sodium. And, uh, you know, if you know if you know about this, the, the sodium reacts violently with water and, and potentially explosively with water. And, and so she she said, here, you, you better put on these safety goggles. Mm -hmm. So I put on these safety goggles. I was just a little kid, you know, and, and I was like this far away from uh, from the glass of water. And she she drops in the sodium and it, it gets so hot that the metal melts. So you have this little ball of molten metal and it evolves hydrogen gas. And th this piece, it actually got so hot that it exploded. And so there was this huge explosion, just like, bam, straight in my face. And it it gives off, uh, you know, sodium hydroxide and you, you could get serious burns and stuff from it. And, and my sister looked at me and said, don't worry about the smoke. It's just your hair. <laughs> so naturally you were hooked immediately. Exactly. That was it. Yeah. And I, and I had to be a chemist. That was exactly it. Yeah. So um, if you have an interest in science and an interest in innovation or technology or entrepreneurship, what led you to then work with these air purification or air pollution companies in particular, based on any other yeah. area you could get involved with? Excellent question. And uh, I, I was teaching environmental chemistry. I teach physical chemistry and environmental chemistry. And we know a lot about all the pollution that we have in the world. And, you know, we people have measured Los Angeles, for example, still has the world record in the amount of ozone air pollution. You know, hasn't been beaten by Beijing or anybody in, in terms of the amount of air pollution. Um, and we know all these cities are very polluted. And I thought, well, if we are really smart, shouldn't we do something to solve this problem instead of just measuring the problem? And uh, that led me to think, and I know that most pollution, when it gets out into the atmosphere, it's removed by an atmospheric radical. You know, we, we hear about, you know, you want to avoid free radicals and antioxidants and all this stuff, but the, the atmosphere has a radical, the hydroxyl radical that removes air pollution. And I figured out how to increase the concentration of the hydroxyl radical by a factor of a million inside of a device, inside of a box, right? They usually tell you to think outside the box. I was thinking into the box. And so I, I made this box and I spent Christmas vacation. Like I bought a full-sized shipping container mm -hmm. and a lot of air duct. And then I was like pounding together all of these ventilation ducts uh, and built this air cleaning system. And then there was a company making windmill blades. And they, they used to make fiberglass boats, and they, they found out that fiberglass was a great material for making windmill blades. Right. But when you do it, you get a lot of air pollution that's made by that process because, you know, there's solvents and there's glues and so on that, that come off. So they had an 80-meter chimney in order to vent all of this air pollution. And they were just spending a fortune in order to pump all that air through the building and heat the building and, and keep the 
keep the concentrations low. So we cut a hole in the chimney, connected the container onto the container onto the onto the chimney, right? First time we turned it on, we eliminated 96% of that air pollution. So it it worked exactly as I de- as I designed just just right off the bat. And then we, you know, we patented that, we opened a company based on that, and that put me in touch with these investors who are now behind uh, Air Labs and, and Rensair. So it was a, a very fortunate thing. And then that, that company went on to uh, make a lot of air cleaning systems, uh, especially for industry. And so I, I think, you know, I know you brought me here in, in part to talk about climate. If you want to. And, and I think... We can we can talk about climate, but I I think that I brought you here because you're cool. Oh, you <laughs> flattery will get you nowhere. It's gotten me pretty far so but, far. <laughs> <laughs> Episode one hundred and fifty. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. That's not bad. That's not bad. Um, but I think that people imagine that there's going to be some magic bullet solution that will get us out of this mess. And I have to say that my, my own experience and my own uh, philosophy or orientation is that the answers are actually right in front of us. We, mm-hmm. we just have to think about it in the right way, right? And so there, there's kind of a mental barrier when there's an obvious solution right in front of your nose and, and you're not doing it. So that's the challenge for me is just seeing the obvious things right, right in front of us. That's the, that's the game for me. You know, what can we do with our hands with these things that we have right in front of us? Are you talking about obvious solutions to climate change or to cleaning up air pollution? Yeah, to, to all of this, to, to all of this, right? I mean, I mean, I, what, what do we have to work with? It's really just these, uh, you know, stupid cells in between our ears and our hands and our friends and whatever, you know, rubber bands and nails we can find in the basement. That's the, mm-hmm. that's what we have. Yeah. What's in front of us? That that's we have to answer the questions with the tools we have. Well, I'd say we've got a lot, almost an infinite amount of stuff in front of us. It's just so many opportunities. I can't help but think that when I talk to so many different people who are doing so many different things with the same stuff, it's pretty uh, it's pretty amazing to to just talk to people like that. Um, let's kind of get into how things are kind of these days, how it's operating, and I would love to start by just talking about what is air pollution and why, why do we even have it to begin with? Sure. Yeah. It's an excellent question. Um, you know, I, I studied in Pasadena. There's, I, I think that there's a native American name where it's called the Valley of smoke. And so it, it's been known for a long time that you can have naturally occurring air pollution. It's, it's not a secret or the, you know, the blue mountains or the, the, Black mountains in, in Germany, you know, these are all just naturally occurring phenomenon that cause some kind of a haze. Are you talking but, about the Blue Mountains in Australia? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, so why are they that's blue? Air, that's air pollution? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was there. So, I didn't know that. And, and it, it just causes diffraction of the light and, and the Smoky Mountains and, and all of these things. Uh, there's a German word that I'm looking for, Schwarzwald, right? The, I mean, there's the, the this phenomenon is... North America and Australia and Europe and, and actually all over when you have conditions that naturally make particles in the air. 
And uh, the problem is that we have a lot of people today and human activities are making this air pollution. And so it, it can be something as simple as cleaning products that people use. And I, I have to say that, you know, the, the three-way catalyst that you have on automobiles today, <clears throat> that's really saved our asses, right? That's a wonderful invention and it, and it takes care of so much air pollution and it's done such a good job that one of the main sources of air pollution in, uh, in Los Angeles today is actually the scents that are used in cleaning products. You know, it smells mm. lemon fresh or it smells like pine trees or something. And these molecules, uh, they get out into the outdoor air and they, they are a source of air pollution. And, you know, that's one source. Industry, of course, is a, is a source. I think road traffic and transportation is definitely a source of air pollution. Um, and any time that you're burning something, right, fossil fuels are a, a large source of air pollution. Uh, tires, it turns out, you get a lot of little rubber particles that are coming off the tires. And we could, we could talk about this all day long, but I think there's two essential elements to the air pollution that really make it a fascinating story. And the, the first one is just that you would think that evolution would have equipped us, would have equipped us to deal with air pollution, right? We, we were given these noses and they're supposed to filter out dust and smoke and stuff. And they do. And it turns out that, you know, one of the reasons that we could, we could win over the Neanderthals is that we're actually better at dealing with smoke than Neanderthals are. So we could hang out next to the fire and, and they couldn't do that as easily, right? So we, I mean, we do have some natural defenses. <clears throat> and what happens is, you know, you breathe in air, there's like a cyclone in your nose, and that should spin out all of these particles. And then they stick onto the sticky stuff. And what happens then? Buggers. Yeah, exactly. Or you, you swallow it, you know, and it's kind of gross, but you're making about a liter of snot every day Delicious. and you swallow it and that's in order to keep your airways clean and what right. happens when you swallow it well it goes into an acid bath in your stomach and then there are enzymes that attack it and they start to take things apart and if there's anything toxic in there it would still have to cross a membrane in order to get into you and you still have the liver and other mechanisms that should protect you against that that uh, pollution. So you're actually pretty well defended against that stuff. Now, the problem comes because you remember you have that cyclone in your nose that's supposed to spin out all, all the air pollution. And when you get small particles, they don't have enough mass to be spun out. And they follow the streamline of air as it flows into your lungs and they don't get trapped in the upper airways. So they go into your lungs, what happens? They hit the wall and they go directly into your bloodstream and they bypass all of those safety mechanisms. So something that you inhale could be 10,000 times more toxic than something that you might eat. And we know that, you know, you shouldn't eat dirt. Maybe some kids eat dirt, but we know you shouldn't eat dirt. But what if you're breathing dirt and it's 10,000 times more toxic than if you were to eat it? So this means 
that even small exposures to air pollution can have very large effects on the body. And this is a problem. You know, I, we were talking about this before, where a lot of people aren't aware of the dangers of air pollution, because a lot of times you can't see it. You know, it's an invisible killer. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the first thing to think about. The second thing to think about is that there's gas phase air pollution. And this is oxidizing gases. It could be ozone. It could be nitrogen dioxide. And then these are causing oxidative stress in you. And you naturally have some antioxidants in your lungs. And I know people who have measured the antioxidants in lung fluid, right? So they get like a little sample of the fluid. And, and, and if you're living in a polluted city, those values are depressed. And so you're not as able to defend yourself against all these oxidizing things that cause aging and they cause oxidative stress in you. Is, and so isn't that good? Oxidative stress? Isn't that like exercise? You breathe heavy? No? Oh, I mean, you, you want to be aerobic. You want aerobic exercise, but you don't want the cell damage that comes from these, these reactive species that you have in the air. That's, mm-hmm. that's what you want to avoid. It, it's causing it. Actually, you can find air pollution in every organ of the body. It causes inflammation throughout a person, right? And, and so that inflammation is actually linked with a depressed immune response. It's linked with diabetes. So diabetes is made worse if you're exposed to air pollution. It's linked with hypertension because your, your blood pressure goes up when you have to deal with these things. And then it's also linked with cancer due to the, due to the, the stress and the damage that you get on your system. So there, there's a lot of negative health outcomes, both from gas phase air pollution and from the particulate air pollution, right? It's a killer. Seven million people a year. That's my next question. Seven million people a year. That's Globally. more than the number of people who have been killed by COVID, right? Right. And think of all the efforts and expense that we've used in order to fight the pandemic. Well, we should be just as concerned about air pollution by by all reasonable measures, yeah? All right, so that was the the quick introduction to why we should think about air pollution. I like it, but it, it varies depending on where you live, right? Surely someone who lives in a very rural or like a forested area is not as affected by air pollution as someone who might live in like a very densely populated city, hey? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I I know some people at Imperial College in London who are looking at air pollution in the body, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you're, it turns out that London has a lot of diesel vehicles and diesel is good at putting out nitrogen dioxide and soot particles. What a great thing to be good at. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and you know, the ironic part of this is that people were sold on diesel as a climate-friendly solution. I remember. You know, it, good for the environment, yeah? And it, I, I, I think that was uh, false marketing. But anyway, they find soot in people, and they find markers in the blood. And so they can tell if somebody has been living, you know, in the Lake District or if they're living in London – just to the just due to the accumulation of uh, air pollution in the bloodstream, you know, it takes roughly a month for that to wash out of you. 
So taking London as an example, or, or if any, anywhere where you have data, how have these air pollution trends kind of changed over the past few decades? Are we consistently seeing more and more pollution as the years go on? Or do you know too much about that? Yeah, that's, that's another really good story. And, uh, you know, in, in the United States, but certainly also in the UK and in Europe uh, and in Asia, there's been a lot of efforts and technologies uh, centered on reducing air pollution. So if, if you just think about vehicles, you know, you, you have the three-way catalyst, the platinum catalyst on, on cars. That's great. It really reduces the uh, hydrocarbon pollution, the carbon monoxide and the NOx coming out of vehicles. At the same time, people are driving a lot more than they used to. And mm -hmm. so these two trends have just about balanced and they've given us constant air pollution levels since, you know, I mean, th this is a gross oversimplification, but basically it, it's been pretty constant since the 80s. You know, we have more cars, but the cars put out less pollution. That's, uh, that's kind of ironic, I think. We, we, you know, there was a lot of concern about acid rain in the 1980s. And so they put on much better sulfur control so that we, we have less sulfur. There's also less uh, NOx coming out, which goes into, into nitric acid. And so these things mean that acid rain is not the problem that it, that it once was because, mm -hmm. of, because of technology. And so, you know, the, if you work with environmental chemistry, it seems like we're always playing catch up and somebody invents some new technology, you get a a consequence that you hadn't imagined, and then you have to go out and save the situation, right? And that's what it is again and again. You invent a better catalyst, and that helps for a while. And then you then you come up with some new technology for diesel vehicles, and that, that helps for a little while. But I think the key to this is having accurate measurements. Right. And so what we've done at Air Labs is to install the world's largest network dense network of air pollution sensors. And I'm very excited about this. And so, uh, you know, we'll be, we'll be having our launch in a couple of weeks. Um, we've had the system running basically since February and we've used low cost sensors. And the very nice thing about that is that by having a low cost, you can have a lot of sensors. And with these sensors that we're using, they have a very high time resolution. And so this combination of a very high density and a very high time resolution means that we get the most detailed picture about air pollution that we have anywhere on the planet. You know, it's never been measured with this accuracy before. So I was telling you before about the long-term trends in air pollution, mm -hmm. but you know, now I can tell you about the short-term trends. So one example is that the, you know, there's the London subway, the London underground. The tube. They went on strike. The tube. Yeah. So there was a tube strike March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of this year. And everybody had to take surface transportation. And so the, you know, the roads were, it was gridlock because everybody was taking a taxi or a bus or something. And we saw just a huge increase in atmospheric particles, in NOx, we saw an increase in carbon dioxide, 
And all these things were just through the roof uh, because everybody was taking surface transportation. So there's a few stories there. The other story uh, is that air pollution actually got really, really good during the pandemic. Sure. Right. And everybody had to stay at home and you, and you can do studies and find out that uh, the emissions of all these things uh, really went down. And scientists learn a lot from that. I mean, we learn, you know, what what would it look like in a, a magical world where we didn't have air pollution? Yeah. So they gave us a, a preview of that. So it's kind of safe to say that one of the primary sources of air pollution would be transportation. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, that's right. That's right. right. So if your technology is measuring in a very precise way, when I look at my phone and it tells me the AQI in Boulder is 130 because there's smoke billowing down the streets from the forest fires, how are they measuring that? Yeah, uh, it's probably a combination of things. Uh, there are regional monitoring stations and you, you have a lot of those in Colorado. Uh, and then I know that there's a lot of you know, citizen scientists who are interested in this technology. And then these people have started setting up their own little measurement stations. I, I think that's a great way for people to become involved. And then there might be people who have set up measurement networks like we've done in London. So all of this data is, is going into, uh, there's also satellites that, that measure these things. Um, it, all, it all goes into that map, right? Gotcha. And you, you can forecast air pollution similar to forecasting the weather. And, you know, if you have a certain amount of sunlight and, you know, lack of wind and so on, that you that you could build up very high air pollution. Cool. So let's get, get further into Air Labs, kind of how the company came into existence, why you exist, like what's your goal with what you're doing. And I'd love to hear more about how the sensors actually work at detecting these particles or how yeah, the network definitely. of them together creates a big, great source of data. Right. So we want to reduce people's exposure to air pollution. That's that's what Air Labs does. I love it. Uh, why we exist is that we, I was telling you about that shipping container that worked to mm. control industrial air pollution. And I, I guess we, we decided, you know, that was going pretty well. Why don't we see what we can do to, to really help individuals? And if you want to do that, uh, first, you need to make this invisible problem of air pollution visible. How do you do that? You need to, you need to have low-cost sensors in order to detect it. And then you need to offer them a solution. So you, you need to uh, have some kind of a filtration system. And so that's, that's what Air Labs was working on, you know, those two things, air filtration and uh, air pollution monitoring. And now we've broken off that uh, filtration research and development division into the company called Rensair. And they have, they have a lot of experience uh, making air cleaners, especially in the medical sector. And now we're, we're combining our technologies uh, and we'll be able to uh, create even more powerful air cleaners in the future. So what exactly does Rensair do? I, I saw that they do some filtration in hospitals for COVID particles as well. Yeah. I'd also like to talk about yeah. air bubble, which is for the, the regular consumer to use. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if you look at a healthcare setting, you very often have a elevated um, ventilation rate in order to decrease 
airborne transmission of disease. And so it, it's a well-known problem that, that people could go to the hospital and then come home with something else, you know, that they caught at the hospital. So they try to increase the ventilation rate, but that's not always easy because you'd have to rebuild the infrastructure in order to increase the ventilation rate. And especially if you're in an office building or a school, you might not have the budget or the time or, or whatever. Or if you're renting space, it might not even be under your control what the ventilation rate is in the building. So this means that there, there's definitely a need for supplementary air cleaning solutions. And the normal ventilation rate in a, in a meeting room, like the meeting room where I am right now, could be something like four air changes per hour. So the air in the room is just shifted out four times per hour. But then in a hospital, you know, that could be 12 or 16 air changes per hour. So a lot of people have the idea that they'd like to bring their meeting room or, or wherever they are up to the medical standard. And then the easiest way to do that is, is just to buy a, a supplementary air cleaning device. And so that, that's what these are. And uh, I, I think there's, you know, hospitals is one very obvious application, but uh, schools, offices, anytime you have people coming together where you could have the transmission of disease, uh, th these are definitely called for. And I, I think that carbon dioxide we've found is a really good way of monitoring the air quality inside. And you, you might have seen these uh, little devices that can just sit on a tabletop and tell you what the carbon dioxide level is. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> it's a really good way of measuring this balance between the number of people in the room and the ventilation of air in the room. And, you know, we we eat food. You know, I'm, I apologize in advance for, for saying this, but, you know, I think a lot of people think that that's coming out either as a solid or a liquid, but it turns out a lot of it is coming out as a gas. And so you're, you're exhaling about two pounds of carbon dioxide every day. It's a lot. It's really a lot. And then, you know, you can just measure this in the air in a room and you find out, you know, if you need to open the window or something. So it's, it's a really good measure of the risk that you have. Uh, so I've, I've measured in our classrooms at the University of Copenhagen. We had a physical chemistry lecture. And, you know, just to set the scale in your mind, you know, ambient air outside, we're now up to about 420 parts per million of air. Carbon dioxide. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, Equivalent. Equivalents, yeah. And then... The, the typical indoor air standard is 1,000 ppm. And so they, they say, you know, that's, that's how they design buildings. You want to keep carbon dioxide below 1,000 ppm because by the time you get to about 1,200 ppm, they've found that your judgment starts to go and people's, the quality of their work starts to be degraded. And then you, you get a little higher, maybe up to 1,400. People could start to get a headache. They start to get sleepy, maybe, you know, 1,500 or 1,600. In this lecture room, we measured 2,500 parts per million of carbon dioxide, right? Yeah, so you're, the I'm reason sure they're the teaching students, lots of people. 
Yeah, the, the, the students aren't going to sleep because the professors are boring, right? It's the air quality. It's the air quality. Oh, that's got to so, be it. That explains. I know. I, I know. Sleep in econ class. We we always take the blame, and it and it, and it's not <laughs> us. That, okay. So, the other part of the story is that we we put these sensors into a hospital transport van in London. Got it. And it, it's like like a shuttle going between the different campuses, you know, and uh, we found. 4,000 ppm of carbon dioxide in these vehicles. And it's, it's shocking, I think. And so it's a real problem when you have all these people in a closely enclosed space. The other problem that's going on there is that these vehicles are driving in traffic and you're essentially getting your air out of the tailpipe of the vehicle in front of you. And so people want to know what they can do about that. And you asked about the air bubble. I and did. this is a this is a wonderful invention that uh, you just put inside the vehicle and it's removing the air pollution, it removes particles, it removes ozone, it removes NO2. And this is a great way to keep the situation clean when you're in rush hour traffic. You know, if you we've measured air quality inside a traffic tunnel, and it's awful. And I, I'm sure you've noticed it yourself. You know, your, your eyes get irritated and you, and you, whenever I go to a big city, I, I get scratchy in my throat just from exposure to air pollution. So it's, it's a problem that we experience, but I, I think people aren't thinking about the, the long-term consequences to their health due to that exposure. So the air bubble, I, I think it's a very good solution to that problem. Well, you say it removes the pollution. Like, what does that what does that mean? Where does where do the particles go? There's a filter. We trap it in a filter. There, there's both a particle filter and a gas filter, and it, it's just stays there trapped. Um, there's a certain changing interval for the filter, depending on how much you drive. Might be six months, might be a year. Um, then you just change the filter. That's that's it. Okay, and because these particles are so small, the filter can collect it, but because they could be potentially so bad for you and you're breathing so many in over time, it could have these these harmful effects. Exactly. Yeah. And you, you want it to be in the filter and not in you. That's, that's right. It. I, I heard I heard a terrible story. You you remember there there was a huge volcano on Iceland a, a dozen years ago, and then you know, people are slaughtering the sheep and they were finding you know, tablespoon-sized lumps of volcanic ash in the lungs of the sheep. And it, it's just the same if, if you have human lungs. You know, we, we have these deposits of air pollution in our lungs. Now, when, when people, a lot of people are not smoking anymore, air pollution is the leading cause of lung cancer. Right. You know, so you, you want to keep this stuff out of you. I guess my question for you is, is who do you think is responsible for the damage that's being caused by this air pollution? Is there some sort of mechanism we can put in place, like a price on air pollution, something like that, maybe? I don't know how to yeah, deal with the, exactly. the issue. I know. Yeah, it's it's a problem. Uh, so if you, want it, if you want the long version, the long version has to do with economics and something called an externality. Yes, right. I would so, love that. Those are my favorite. Yeah, definitely. Wonderful. Yep. So let, let's go into this. So let's say, I don't know, that I have a coal mine and then I sell you a ton of coal for $75. You know, that, that's a great deal. You get a ton of coal 
you can do whatever you want with it. You know, maybe you heat your house or you make some steel out of it or generate electricity. You make some money because you got the coal. And I got this cash and I'm like 75 bucks. You know, I'm going to have a night on the town. That, that's wonderful. And the problem is that there are these external consequences of our contract. And those external consequences are that that ton of coal is going to make, you know, over two tons of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. That's going to have a climate impact. It's also going to generate some air pollution because we get some mercury that's going to come out of this. We get some atmospheric particles. We get NOx. We get some acid rain due to the sulfur and so on. So you, you could add this up in different ways. But it turns out that the you know, the economic cost of this, I, I heard this from a professor at the London School of Economics, and he worked it out that, uh, you know, it's it's about $250 worth of external costs. Per pound of coal? Per, per pound of coal or what? For what? You know, we had a little contract just between you and me. We do a great job. You know, we're, we're both happy as, as can be. Everybody else out there somewhere is bearing that cost, that $250. So that's an external cost. It's a cost that's external to our, our contract. And that's one of the big problems with, with environmental impacts. You know, if you, there's a, a truck burning diesel and, you know, the, and you're, you're rolling coal, right? And so you have this big black cloud that comes out. Who pays the cost of that? It's not the truck driver. But it's really all of us because right. we bear the health consequences of that. Maybe, you know, Medicare or the state health care. Uh, we pay for it in the quality of life that we have. You have depressed property values as a consequence of air pollution. Nobody wants to live in the, in the dirty part of town. And so the World Bank has investigated the economic impact of air pollution. They found that it's like 10% of the economic output of China is lost to air pollution. Mm -hmm. And there's similar statistics for Europe and North America and India and so on. So we're definitely paying for it, but it's hard to point at the guilty party because it's all of us. You know, everybody bears the consequence of that external cost. So we all should pay. Maybe we all should pay. Yeah, I, I, well, you know, one way of looking at it, we all are paying. Mm -hmm. And so what I think we can do is find a way of making that, uh, of reducing the cost. Now, I happen to live in Denmark and, you know, it's a very unique place. And you could say they're a bit lucky because it's a small country, you know, four or five million people, homogenous population. Uh, you don't have a lot of deep divisions in the country and you have nationalized health care. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that they found in Denmark was that, you know, for every kilometer of bike path that they built, they would save money on healthcare, And so they, they just went crazy and they, they've built bike paths everywhere. And over 90% of Danes own a bicycle. You know, everybody commutes by bicycle, especially in the summer. You know, it's over half of everybody who use, uses their bike every day. They... You get a lot of pleasure out of riding a bike. You know, I'm, I'm never unhappy when I'm on my bike. Your quality of life improves, but 
the system is saving money at the same time. So we, we just have to make these connections, you know, and we, we can make life better for everyone. It's a good thought. Um, there's also the aspect of, of people's freedom and them wanting to choose how they want to travel. And I've had a lot of discussions about public transportation and cycling. But yeah. yeah, at the end of the day, things are the way they are. And yeah, I, mean, I appreciate that that explanation about the, the externalities. I think it's a, probably the most important conversation I think I have on this podcast. Personally, I'm very interested in market-based solutions and using economics to, to change the situation. The fact that we have an untaxed externality of carbon emissions. And now I thank you so much for shedding light on air pollution. I think it's just as relevant if you want to look at it in terms of climate change kills people. There's no, there's, that might be, that's still projections perhaps. I mean, they could, you could make the argument or there's data that climate change is killing people today, but in America today, right now, there's no doubt that air pollution is killing people. So it's, it's very beneficial to have had that, that conversation. Um, tell me this, Matthew, any exciting developments at Air Labs recently? Perhaps maybe you were nominated for something cool, anything <laughs> on, on, on that front? Oh, yeah. we, we, we were actually nominated for, for the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Just a and little it's, it's small a very, detail. It's a, it's a great honor. It's, it, it's definitely an honor, and, I, and I'm humbled. Um, and uh, the, the, the reason is, is uh, you know, that that air pollution has such a consequence for everyone in the world. And uh, the World Health Organization says that air pollution is uh, killing 7 million people a year. Mm -hmm. That's more people than are being killed by violence, by all forms of violence combined, including war. So if you can do something uh, to control air pollution, I, I think you, you've made a contribution towards peace. Now, I, I, don't, I don't think we're worthy of the prize. You know, I, 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 there's no way that we would actually win it. But simply to, to have been nominated, I, I think it's an honor. So uh, thank you for, for bringing this up. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you for doing what you're do, doing. I think, I think it's great. And I think we need all, all a suite of solutions to make the world a better place. And that's always the case. So speaking of, of pioneering positive change or using business to wake, make the world a better place, what do you personally think is the role of an entrepreneur when it comes to, you know, building, building a better world? Right. So uh, if you make kind of a cartoonish picture of the government, you, 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 you know, you, you imagine some, some guy who, who's saying that that's wrong, that's dangerous, stop that. You know, and and uh, of course, there, there's a pushback to that that kind of uh, regulation. And you you could go back to something that FDR said. You know, he he said, uh, "I I need you guys to create the change," and then he would be able to act on something. And so I think definitely one thing that Air Labs can do is to make this information available. And the information itself has a value as a catalyst for change. So if people become aware of the problem of air pollution, they're going to want solutions for, for air pollution. So that, that's, that's definitely one thing, one thing that we can do. But the other thing is I think that we can act as a catalyst in order to remove barriers. And so, you know, if you build a better mousetrap, anybody would be a, few, a fool not to use your mousetrap. 
you know. So if you have a better system for trapping air pollution, a more efficient system or, or whatever, people would adapt that solution without having to be forced to do it, right? Just simply because it would make sense. And so that, you know, that's kind of the dream of, a, of an inventor or an entrepreneur is simply to do something that makes sense, that uh, creates change. And then, you know, I, I started out at the university <clears throat> and you, you work with a lot of people and uh, you, you can kind of, you know, create students who can create change. But one of the things that I really appreciate about working with business is that you have this mechanism for creating something in the world. And then you, you give people the ability to control the situation themselves. And maybe they, they improve the air quality inside of a room or inside of their vehicle, or they're now aware of air pollution uh, where they live. You know, any one of these things uh, creates a positive change in the world. So that, that's very exciting. That, you know, that gives, that's where I get my energy is uh, creating these positive changes. No, I love that. I think that's a fantastic response and I really appreciate it. Any other kind of favorite companies come to mind beyond, beyond your own that are doing some kind of similar work? Oh, <laughs> I'm not prepared for that question. <laughs> I don't mean necessarily in, in air pollution, just, just generally when it comes to improving the world through, through markets. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I think Google does a very nice job, for example, just, just to give one example of uh, providing information that makes a positive change in, in people's lives. And uh, I'm, I'm using Google every single day. You know, right. It could be Google Documents. It could be Google Maps. There's a service, Google Scholar, where it makes all of mm -hmm. the scientific literature available. You know, all of these things are, are just part of our everyday life now. I, I also like Wikipedia a lot. Sure. I think that's a wonderful service just to make knowledge available to, to everyone in the world. Yeah, that's, that's a very short list. And, and there's many, uh, you know... <laughs> companies who, who, are, who are left off. I think people sometimes forget and take for granted when a company becomes a, a billion dollar valuation valuated company and they have lots of controversy, a company like Facebook or Google or I don't know, not Tesla's not a good example, but like Facebook or Google, where they're so integral to our lives and there's always some sort of headline about what they're doing wrong, but you forget about how much it's fundamentally improved your life. For example, someone you went to high school with that you haven't seen in 20 years all of a sudden this program comes along that allows you to find your friend you didn't have cell phones maybe yeah. you didn't even have email addresses then and now you're able to connect with them after years and people just now that's just been going on for 20 years they take it for granted and they get all upset about all the algorithms and the social division yeah. but you can't forget that they have made the world fundamentally better in so many ways and i think people are always quick to jump on the the negative train but that's not how i like to conduct my caboose over here but um matthew this has been this has been great man i guess i just wanted to throw one, one more thing at you before we kind of get out of here um this this idea of psychologically dealing with invisible threats whether it's air pollution or climate change if we can't see it how and i understand that you have the sensors that give you the direct data but what are your thoughts on getting people engaged with these issues that aren't necessarily a beast like a like a demon that's about to like like a bear you see a bear you like i'm getting out of here but you know you see air pollution it's only slowly over time yeah. having yeah. this effect just want to get your thoughts on that no I, I and i think you're exactly right is that uh you know we're we're trained 
by evolution to react to immediate threats. Sure. And, uh, you know, I, I know you're interested in economics. And mm. so, I, you know, you're familiar with the discount rate that a dollar you have in your hand today is worth more than a dollar that you might have in your hand, you know, five or 10 years from now. And I, and I think that that way of thinking, um, it, you know, even if we set aside psychology, it means that the decision-making process is terribly biased towards the present day and has a huge blind spot that, that could be, you know, 30 years out simply because there's no economic value in today's currency with something that might be 30 years out. You know, you, you really have to stretch to find examples of industries that react uh, on those long planning scales. It's also true of the political process. You know, you're, you want to win the next election. And so it's immediate concerns that are, that are concerning our, uh, our decision makers. Now, if we go into the, the psychological uh, realm, I think people are also mainly concerned with, with immediate things, you know, and, and you might have seen Maslow's pyramids. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, at the, at the base of that, you, you know, it's survival that you're thinking about. And, and then when you get to the top, maybe you, you have uh, culture and some, some kind of higher needs. Now, somebody has calculated the annual income required for starting to think about the environment. You know, you, you, you have to have your, your basic needs for shelter and food and so on addressed before you start to, to think about the quality of your environment. And Unless I, you're you know, me. Can look up, sorry? Unless you're me, but yeah. <laughs> I'm, the, yeah. I'm the one exception to that rule, it would appear. Yeah, and uh, I, I forget the exact number, but I, I, I think it was, it was around $10,000 a year. And then you can look at a, at a country like China that has been advancing very rapidly. And so they're, they're crossing that threshold right now. And you start to see a lot more concern about the you know, environmental degradation and uh, environmental consequences and long-term planning uh, that are going on there. And so you know, one of the arguments you could make is that a healthy economy is making people think about having a healthy environment. Right. So if we, we have economic progress, then people uh, have the ability to think about these larger concerns. Oh, I stand corrected. I thought you were going to say like forty thousand dollars a year. Ten thousand. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, no, maybe I, I guess I do fit into the, the framework then. But yeah, no, it's an excellent point. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, this has been a great conversation, man. I appreciate you coming on and taking the time. I, I love what you're doing. Excited to see it continue to grow. And then I'd love to see us get to the, the root of the problem and create technologies that don't pollute, but still allow us to have all the amazing opportunities we have today, the ability to travel anywhere, travel quickly, connect with people across yeah. the internet, you know, um, server, Google servers and Facebook servers create a lot of pollution as well. I have no doubt, but that doesn't mean that we don't want to be connected to one another. And I really believe that the, the, tech, the new technological wave is coming because it always is. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, I, and I think here we, we've mainly been focused on air pollution and uh, we, we actually haven't come in to climate so much, but there, there's so much more that can be said about climate. The problems are definitely linked. You have climate, climate consequences due to many different kinds of air pollution. 
but certainly if, if you're looking at the long-term consequences of air pollution, then it's, it's all about climate and climate change and tipping points and sustainability and so on. So there's, we, we, we could have another meeting where, where we simply focus on the climate. Yeah. Certainly. Well, it was just the idea we, someone I had spoken to recently said that combustion is like the crudest way to create electricity. And that's combustion is what's causing this air pollution. So if we should just not be burning things to create energy. It just seems like a one way to look at it. Cool. Well, Matthew, thanks for the time, man. Do you have any final pieces of advice for young folks who are passionate about building a better world? <laughs> I think that's great. Uh, you know, get off your butt and go do something. That's that's my advice. It, it takes it takes persistence, and you just got to show up and uh, use the skills you have. That's I think it. that's all it takes to be a changer in the world is to actually just do something. I think as, as long as you do something, you will create an impact. Maybe it's not the gigantic impact that you've been dreaming of forever, but I mean, if you can influence one person in a positive way, I think it's really meaningful. And all it takes really is just to be like, I'm going to do something today. I'm not just going to go into work and come home and do, you know, do the routine. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to try to change things. And I think that's all it takes. That's all that these movers do. They just do things every day consistently and get in a routine of doing something new and trying to push their ideas out into the world. So I appreciate you for doing that. I appreciate anyone who's trying to do that to uh, pioneer positive change. So Matthew, I really appreciate the time, man. Yep. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks again for the invitation. You're welcome. All right, everybody. And we'll see you. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.